Welcome to For What It's Worth, a podcast in partnership with OmniTalk and Third House. I'm your host, Carlos Castellan, and I'm also the managing director at the Navio Group, a consulting firm that helps retail leaders transform their business. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, you can visit our website at thenaviogroup.com. That's T-H-E-N-A-V-I-O-G-R-O-U-P.com. I'm joined by my colleague and the senior advisor at the Navio Group, Tupan Bakchi. We have a couple fun segments today, including CEO Chalk Talk, where Masayoshi-san, the CEO of SoftBank, writes in to get a third-party opinion on his vision fund and a game called Full Price or Discount, where we decide whether we're buying a statement at face value or discounting its validity. Happy Friday, Tupan. Hey there. Happy Friday. All right, let's get started. So a couple things, you know, uh, last week and, and this week in terms of newsworthy. Um, so we've seen layoffs happen at Wayfair, uh, Jet Black, Kohl's, Macy's, Barney's, Brandless, lots of brands shuttering, lots of layoffs. Um, what's the takeaway here, for at least in your mind, in terms of everything that's happened? Yeah, uh, it's been a tough week, certainly. Um, and unfortunately, I think it's really a pretty reflexive short-term move in many cases. Um, I mean, each, each of these companies is a, dealing with a slightly different context. But, um, you know, as, as I think we've discussed often, winning, you know, long-term, it's, it's more about trying to find the ways to grow versus taking some of these short-term measures that are, frankly, you end up probably losing some really good talent um, and then you're scrambling when things actually do turn the corner. Um, and so when I think about, you know, what, what's the pivot, it's kind of focusing on fundamentals, elevating and evolving uh, with consumers and, and a relentless focus on operations. And I'd love to dive deeper into Wayfair specifically. You know, I think, you know, I appreciate that they have this mission to bring better furniture options to the mass market. Uh, they kind of really think about providing that Walmart or Target shopper with a better better option. But the way to do that is actually to start with the higher end, uh, find a profitable niche, and then scale to mass as the model proves out um, and acceptance grows. And if I were advising Wayfair CEO Nirit Shah, I would push him to take a harder look at his portfolio of brands, which includes premium sites like All Modern, Jossen Main, Birch Lane, and Paragold. And I don't know if you've ever even heard of them. I mean, some of Paragold I didn't even realize had launched. Um, I think they need to take a hard look at that, develop a clear segmentation strategy, and lean into the premium side. So shifting the mix in aggregate and looking at their product mix by site to achieve profitability. That's how I would have gone about it versus kind of drop, you know, cutting 550 people. Yeah, you know what's interesting about that? Uh, you know who else had that similar strategy? Elon Musk, Tesla. You know, they started going with very high end premium cars to mm -hmm. get the margin, reinvest back into the business, um, and obviously drive down the cost of developing batteries so they could eventually start building more mass market cars. And I think that makes a lot of sense, especially in a business with like furniture, where so much of the cost is in the supply chain and the last mile getting that to customers. And, you know, I saw this point the other day, but. Furniture is funny because name brand doesn't really matter a whole lot. Like how, how many furniture brands out there can you say like this is a premium brand, I'm going to go out and buy it. It's oftentimes just the retailer, um, mm -hmm. but you wouldn't know the name of a particular couch or a particular thing because they change. Um, and, you know, when you're sitting at someone's home, it's not like it has labels or you <clears throat> understand what it is. So uh, definitely agree with you. And I think that that high end part of the market, I, I would also say it to me, it, it, it sort of needs to be in front of the customer for people to see it. I think that's a harder thing to do online. Yeah, absolutely. And a great example with Tesla. I mean, it's absolutely proving it out in the very, very premium before kind of bringing an unproven model to the mass. Yeah, I agree. The, the only thing I would say is, you know, to me, it's it's sad, obviously, that this has become the norm that we, you know, you have poor earnings results and you end up laying, laying folks off. Um, you know, it's not something that we, we 
want to see like when you start piling up poor financial results you know and at the same time i think this has become the norm for companies you miss a couple quarters and you're trying to scramble and be reactive and and that's oftentimes what people do um but i think the question as like you go through these layoffs is then what do you do going forward to be proactive about this and and do you take the you know do you take that basically your existing workforce and go through a different plan um, and start to go and move in a different direction? Or what do you do if you're reducing the workforce? Yeah, I mean, I, I look to, to target. I mean, certainly four or five years ago, as they were executing their turnaround, there there were headcount reductions, but it was also clear that it came with a plan. It came with a really strong plan that involved focusing on fundamentals, finding ways to profitability, refreshing and updating the stores, refreshing and updating the assortment. And so um, they've stuck to that, you know, small formats, delivery, I mean, all of the things. Um, and so, so while unfortunate in that instance, it came with a strong plan for growth. And here it's not as clear what the plan is. It's kind of, again, a very short term way to, to, you know, address profitability, but without maybe a strong indication of what's, what's coming next. Yeah, definitely agree with you. It'll be interesting to see what what shakes out here uh, over the coming sort of months and and this year. But you'd hope to see that this sort of ultimately drives towards something something bigger for these particular retails. You know, in the instance of Macy's or Kohl's, perhaps might be a little bit tougher uh, just given their their scenario and where the market is. But certainly, we'll we'll see. Yep. Awesome. So let's move on to our next uh, segment. So CEO Chalk Talk. Um, we had a lot of submissions this week, but I think one one stood out. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll read it out here. Dear Navio team, I heard a wise man once say, with great power comes great responsibility. Well, I once had great power and was lauded as a visionary, but ended up getting entangled in a web of bad investments. First, there was a company that sold me on the riches of a new financial metric called community-based EBITDA. Then there was a brand that, get this, Tupan, said it had no brand. And lastly, an organization which had a machine that promised to make the fastest, most beautiful pizza pies you've ever seen. How did I go wrong with these investments? And is the direct-to-consumer market now as bad as they say it is? I've been hearing about something that called the sleep economy that intrigues me. Your friend, Masayoshi in Japan. <laughs> Tupan, what would you say to Masayoshi? Yes. And again, the disclaimer that these are uh, fictitious letters. Um, but if, you <laughs> if this was legit... Um, our response, oh God, no, not the sleep economy. Stay away, stay away. Um, in all seriousness, Masa-san, I understand you're visiting New York next month uh, to reassure investors that you're you're still the best unicorn hunter out there. But I, I would encourage you to saddle up because it's not going to be pretty. Um, Bloomberg reports that your, your presentations in the past included um, hypothetical profitability for WeWork, um, stock images of ocean waves and calm waters, and picture of a goose that was labeled mysteriously as SoftBank equals goose. <laughs> um, and so first and foremost, you need to strengthen governance at all levels. Um, apparently, there was an attempt a few years back to, to set up uh, kind of an operating group, and it failed. And now uh, you've got an activist investor, Paul Singer's Elliott Management in the mix. Uh, and he's asked for a special committee to review the Vision Fund's investment process, naturally. And you've countered with the need for better governance within your investments. And the, frankly, you're both right. You need governance um, over how the fund is being deployed. You need governance of, of how your investments are using that, those funds. Um, you know, second, I'd say you're over leveraged and you need to pay down some debt. And so people have been calling on you to sell some Alibaba shares. And I think 
now is the right time to do that. While they're strong, you know, this is an industry that faces constant disruption. And so better to cash out a portion, not saying, you know, a significant amount, but enough that uh, while the, the valuations are rich. And my final point would be that, you know, you need a clear strategy. Um, the recent track record hasn't been been pretty. I mean, offloading Sprint brings in some capital, but it, it falls far short of what the aspiration had been to build the world's number one wireless carrier. Uh, not to mention WeWork's implosion costing you almost $10 billion, Uber trading in 10% below IPO, issues across Brandless, a dog walking app <laughs> called Wag Labs, and your pizza robot uh, company, Zoom Pizza. So in response to this critique that your strategy is unclear, apparently the response has been to hire uh, investor relation folks to improve the messaging. Um, and I'm hoping they do better than the ocean waves and the goose. So my final piece of advice <laughs> would be to hire some strategists instead. And you can find us at thenaviogroup.com. Um, build a clearer thesis. Look for bolt-on opportunities where you've been successful and consider taking a longer stage gate approach to your investments. That would be our my three cents. But I don't know what thoughts you have for our friend Masasan. Yeah, I think, you know, I always come back to, and I know we typically do this, but, you know, what's what's sort of the, the underlying issue to me? And I think there's, to me, I, I don't want to say, you know, directly addressing the direct-to-consumer piece. I don't think it's dead at all. I think the problem is when you give this much capital upfront, the expectations go out of whack. Yeah. You know, a, a company like brandless, you know, might have had a chance to succeed if they'd been able to figure out the value proposition early on um, and might have been able to figure out, you know, basically the, the right model. But when you take $240 million as, as an investment, that automatically changes the expectations from both, you know, from investors and, and therefore the employees and then the customers. And I think that a lot of times, you know, in these cases is, I, I would say, the check sizes that they're writing mm -hmm. don't often make a lot of sense. Like if you want to write that check, do that for Tesla or do it for capital intensive businesses where they need to, you know, there's actually manufacturing and production that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. um, but most of the time for these direct to consumer businesses, that's going to customer acquisition costs. So that's going from SoftBank over to Google or Facebook or whomever else they're using to acquire customers. And that, you know, just Great hasn't point. become yeah. a, a sustainable strategy for any of these direct to consumer companies. So I think what we'll see um, you know, going forward, I don't think direct to consumer is dead, but I think the typical model that people have used over the last five or six years of buying ads on Facebook, Instagram, Google to acquire customers, I don't know how that's sustainable anymore. Yeah, no, I, I think a lot of great points there. Um, you know, the, 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 the ridiculous checks are, you know, just inviting, uh, I wouldn't say bad behavior, but irresponsible behavior. Um, and I also agree that there's, there's still room and an important role that digitally native uh, and D2C can play. Um, because for so many entrepreneurs and startups, like it's a great low risk uh, way to kind of get your product out there. And I think with most categories and innovation, there's always an adoption curve. And that op adoption curve always starts on the high end and premium. So jumping again to something very mass, I mean, almost seeing a parallel between Wayfair and Brandless of trying to do something at the way mass right out of the gate is not the way to start. Um, and so I think digitally native is a great way, again, to test out new things, see if there's demand um, in a low risk uh, way. And then as it proves out, again, in baby steps, <laughs> scale that up, scale into physical, scale into all kinds of things. But uh, um, but yeah, I, I, I see a, still a value for, for the model, but maybe not with ridiculously large checks to, to you know, force some discipline 
uh, and focus on profitability too. Yeah, I think that ties into your governance piece. It's hard to it's hard to have any sort of governance around you know maybe just on the investment side, but also for the companies to mm-hmm. say let's stage gate some of this. If you're saying well the yeah. priority is actually we got to put 240 million dollars to work. What are you going to do with that versus yeah. How do we make this? I don't you know, know how many WeWork locations there are, but I'm not sure the world needed. I mean, we're sitting in Minneapolis. It blows my mind. We have three of them. And then there's other like non-WeWork co-working spaces. So I don't you know, plug to Third House. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're recording this from. But um, yeah, it's, 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 it's nuts. Like that's not rational. I don't think Minneapolis needs three WeWorks. No, and certainly not at the valuation that yeah. they were talking about. I mean, that they were, it was sold as a community rather than. Yeah. Than, than you know as a as a real estate play and you're obviously seeing that that shift back and forth uh you know now yeah anyways I, I think it'll be interesting to monitor obviously masa masayoshi will be doing just fine uh you know <laughs> he's he's still got his alibaba investment you know as we met uh we were talking before offline but um they you know softbank made a ton of money on the recent sort of t-mobile sprint deal mm-hmm. so but i think the the vision fund in particular the venture capital piece will be interesting to monitor because i i think that those days of of cutting those large checks and and backing those companies you know might be might be over at this point yeah no but, and it's it's interesting it'll be interesting to see the dynamic now with an activist investor uh in the mix who won't have control but you know certainly will will i think be encouraging a lot more discipline going forward. Agreed. I think it'll be good too. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to our final segment, Tupan, uh, full price or discount. So we have a couple different topics uh, in the news. Most recently, um, the Victoria's Secret sale that happened uh, this week. So full price or discount, Tupan? Um, Victoria's Secret sale is the first step to revitalizing the brand. I'm full price on this. Um, Well, I mean, because I don't want to say discount. So maybe it's a moderate. (laughs) I'll take a slight discount. But, um, you know, I think Temporary price cut. Yeah, temporary price cut. Um, <laughs> PE ownership, it's not a slam dunk, um, but it does get the brand out from under Lex Wessner's um, troubled leadership, and it provides a longer timetable for a turnaround and hopefully injects some new capital, some new leadership, and some new ideas. I actually saw a really insightful piece in Forbes by uh, Shelley Cohen calling out a few key things uh, that I think are no- wor- worth noting. Uh, lingerie is a $9 billion market in the U.S., and it actually grew at a 4% CAGR through 2018. So wow. this is a category that has legs. Um, and no dominant player. Stunningly, Victoria's Secret owns 60% market share. Yeah. Um, so there's one dominant player. I guess you're right. Yeah, They yeah. are the dominant player. All other brands are below 5% market share. Wow. Okay. Um, you know, and so they, there is... I mean, structurally, like it's it's hard to keep going up when and defy gravity when you're like that big and that that uh, significant. I mean, to put it in perspective, Walmart and grocery is about a twenty five percent market share. So they're number one, but they're you know not a majority of grocery dollars. Victoria is like sixty percent of the category. Um, another interesting factoid that uh, that that that, that Shelly cites is that uh, one third of millennial bra dollars, <laughs> that's a thing, um, <laughs> was spent on sports bras. And that that was in 2018 specifically, but um, and that being a big miss for Victoria's Secret. Mm-hmm. And so um, as I reflect on where they are and where they need to go, I think one brand can't stretch across all the different kind of undergarment or lingerie need states, so to speak. You know, I think they need to uh, add another brand or subline beyond pink and then clearly delineate What's for active wear? What's everyday comfort? And what's there for the special occasion? And I'd love, you know, I think what they need to do is emulate some of the luxury lingerie brands like Agent Provocateur, 
and La Perla on how to deliver on sexy without relying on supermodels because those brands seem to be doing well. I don't have like precise growth stats on them, but I think there there is a room for sexy that's not your everyday and not just the body positivity message, but just done in a very different, more tasteful, but maybe more achievable way. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you make some really interesting points. I, I, you know, I saw something similar about that, the market. They're obviously, they have a position that I think they can leverage. Um, and, you know, we're obviously two dudes talking about <laughs> women's undergarments right now. But I, but I think it's interesting to go to like, because it's just a, you know, a whole different market. And I think it doesn't get a lot of attention more broadly. But I would say that at least if I were to full price or discount this, I'm going to go more discount on mm-hmm. this. And I, I think it's not because I don't see the potential, but I think the bigger issue here is, does Sycamore come to the table with enough capital to turn this around? Like if I look at those stores, mm-hmm. um, I think they have to go, you know, there's like a major undertaking to sort of revamp the stores, freshen them up. They, they seem really dark today. Like it mm-hmm. doesn't seem like a, a you know, Again, two dudes, but I'm so I'm not going to shop yeah. there. But it doesn't seem like an inviting place to just go in and try and then like you know feel the fabrics. Like if you're going to go, uh, you know, which I know a lot of people go go do just when they're picking apparel in general. Um, and I also think you know so changing some of that up, having a clear messaging around this stuff, like and and the, it just seems like that's going to be the the larger play. And then let's say they do have enough capital to come to the table. The biggest issue in my mind is changing the culture around this. Like mm-hmm. this is a this is a company to your point that has a heritage and sort of a, a like a way of doing things, but for me, you know, and it sounds like for you too, for them to succeed going forward, it's going to need to be completely different. Um in, yeah. in terms of a in terms of the culture and how they position themselves for this like age that we're in today. Yeah, I uh, you know, I think it's not a slam dunk for sure. Um, and Sycamore, I think, has a has a mixed record. I mean, some some positives, some uh, you know, still struggling investments, um, and Limited still retaining forty five percent ownership. So it's not like they're completely separating here. Um, so long road ahead. But I think for me, I think the, the message has probably been received loud and clear that the old the angels that that whole. I mean, we've talked about like the the runway show getting canceled on all of that. So. As long as they're getting that message um, and can make this pivot, and I think rather than stretch the brand into all the different places and where it's now kind of confusing, I think it's, it may be more like a, a, an opportunity to to have sublines or some ways to differentiate against what are all the different things. Because again, like back to the sports bras, like is that something I think of Victoria's Secret for first? Not really. I mean, again, two dudes talking about it, so I don't know. I should ask my wife, but I don't think she buys them there. Um, so anyway, so I think different brands for different purposes. And I think, you know, a darker, you know, a more intimate intimate experience could be very appropriate for a very specific need, which is where more of the luxury ones play. Yep, absolutely. Well, it'll be interesting to see how, how, how it plays out. Definitely the opportunities there. So I think the classic devil is going to be in the details on this one. Yeah. Awesome. So next one, Tupan, full price or discount? Uh, Macy's recently announced its uh, new Polaris plan. <laughs> so will it find its North Star through private label, which was a key point in their plan? Uh, I'm very discount on this one. Um, you know, it it could be, it could if done right, but I think they need to replace the brands versus trying to reinvent them. You know, Target did that category by category and then added more. So you had Cat and Jack replacing Circo and Cherokee. You had Goodfellow replacing Morona and Massimo. Um, 
and then adding things like universal thread denim, new day for professional attire, all in motion for athletic wear that just happened. And I'm not sure that international concepts, Alfani, Style and Company, and Charter Club, which are the four brands that they're betting on and saying they want to grow to be billion dollar brands. I just don't know if those are brands that are going to resonate with today or tomorrow's consumer. So I think, you know, just why not just throw some of those out? I mean, maybe one of those still resonates and I don't have the market research to say, but as N of one, like none of those sort of pop for me as like interesting brands. Um, and I would argue that four brands and a 25% penetration goal is not high enough and that their goal should be to have seven to $10 billion brands and a 40% penetration. So I just don't think that they're leaning in hard enough on, on the private brand side where they could have a fabulous opportunity. Yeah, I, I'm discount on this. Um, and I think there's the market obviously is too. They've gotten their credit downgraded recently in the last oh, week yeah. to, to junk levels. Um, I looked this up, but the market cap was for Macy's was $22 billion in 2015. It's $5 billion today. So it's gone down 75% in the last five years. I, I don't That's know. That's a stunner. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. It, it's this is like a this is a dramatic decline. And what I would say is I don't know that it's, it, you know, private labels the silver bullet for this. I actually would say, and this is, you know, perhaps a different opinion, but I would say actually go more on the national brand and branded side. Mm-hmm. Figure out how could you pick out some of those uh, direct-to-consumer brands and start to bring those in. Back to our earlier <coughs> conversation, could you bring in uh, smaller players in, that, that do bras or lingerie well for yep. your for your core customers that might be outside of Victoria's Secret? That's, that seems like an opportunity instead of trying to develop this in-house and grow your revenue that way by bringing in customers. Uh, and those brands, by the way, we, we talked about this earlier, it's hard for them to acquire customers to do brick and mortar. Macy's is that it is a great space for them to do that. Let's say that works and you can start to build on private labels. Yeah. But, I, but I would go that direction, actually. <clears throat> no, I love that you brought that up. I mean, and I think as hard as it is, they have to do a bit of both. They need to rethink the whole, many of the brands, you know, like they've had some longstanding partnerships and there's some great brands that were probably really the right aspirational brands in the 80s and 90s. And but they just kind of plot along and, you know, I don't think are super exciting. I mean, and there's so many just novel and different ways. I mean, just as a ex- random example, I mean, you look at the suiting area and you have all the, I, th- I think Van Heusen, whatever, like kind of the same things that like our dads used to wear. Um, but I don't think, you know, we are like interested in those brands. And so, um, but then I was at the Galleria and I saw this like suit supply. I don't know if you've ever seen it yep. or, or it's out of the Netherlands and it looks super cool and i'm like suddenly i'm like maybe i want to buy a suit and like they have a tailor sitting there and it's like i mean it's very modern very hip very like and i'm like suddenly oh wow i'm like considering a suit and i but i you know for me i walk through macy's that's a section i just walk right by (laughs) and because it's set up the exact same way that it was 30 years ago and you know it hasn't changed and so the whole thing needs to evolve. I think they do need more modern brands and like doing, you know, bringing a suit supply in or something like along those lines to like revitalize how the men's experiences could be interesting. Um, I was going to make this point, and but in the interest of time, I hadn't when we were talking about the layoffs, but, you know, the ways that I think about for Macy's and Kohl's, what they should think about in terms of just connecting with today's consumer it's a lot about this. You made more relevant, more of these up and coming brands. I think also transparency, like how can they be stronger voices in terms of the sourcing and the sustainability it's a great ethics. Point. You know, those are the things that are resonating with people. It's like, but you know, and none of the, the none of the older brands really have 
focused on that yet. And all the newer things that are exploding have clear uh, purpose, you know, behind them. Uh, so opportunity there, I think, to, to, to figure that out. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I'm not thrilled by the plan, but I think there's, you know, there's still opportunity for Macy's, but it, it's going to take some, you know, some, some drastic efforts on, on the part of management there. All right, last one, Tupan. Uh, Walmart's latest earnings. So they had a sort of a big earnings call uh, earlier this week. Um, lots of news coming out of that. But I guess the big question is, based on what you saw, Walmart's latest earnings call marks a positive turning point for the company, full price or discount. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm a bit discount on this one um, because it, it, it sounds like the pendulum is swinging too far from, you know, clearly the dot-com acquisition spree was, it didn't make a lot of sense. And, and, and they're hitting pause and retracting and unwinding and, and dealing with the now aftermath of that for all of us who are kind of scratching our heads watching it happen. But as much as that was a little bit overdone, to hear the key messages now being about cost control sort of feels like the opposite extreme. And the big risk here is that you're going to now stifle innovation where they just they need to be on top of that to keep evolving as, as Amazon just keeps you know <laughs> launching as they did. They're, they're, they're or soon to open the new grocery format in California, um, you know, going right, right at Walmart's strength which is frankly the, the food side um so no i i'm like very troubled by comments that say like we're just going to focus on cost control i think it adds the governance it's almost like parallel to the, the masa conversation of have some governance and discipline over what you're doing and what you're buying but don't stop yeah you know thinking about innovation and only focus on cost yeah i'm with you I, I'm, I'm more discount on this um and i think you know the walmart yeah, kind of legacy, sort of the heritage, the culture is about cost control, about being frugal. There's, you know, tons of stories and examples um, coming, you know, even from, and obviously this came from Sam Walton himself. Yeah. You know, at the same time, I think, you know, I that, worked there. I mean, you take out your own trash from your desk. I mean, there's all kinds of things you do. <laughs> right. And I think, that, you know, there's, there's obviously something important about that, that I think has set the, you know, set the tone for the company in terms of how they also serve customers, you know, with low prices. And at the same time, what I would say is, Going forward, I think they're you're going to need to find those places that you're going to make bets on and innovation. Maybe e-commerce, you know, the brands didn't work, but does it mean it was a bad thing to do? Uh, you know, I think it was probably important for them to try, and it's certainly there's some there's some good that um, comes from that in terms of kind of balancing out the more e-commerce with with brick and mortar stores. So, um, what I would hate to have happen is then say, well, we're going to be really selective about our innovation because I think it's really hard to you know when when looking at innovation on the front end and those opportunities, I think it's oftentimes hard to see what that potential is. And so it's easier to say no to things than it is to say yes. Yep. Anyways, uh, yeah, interesting to see what will happen with, with Walmart here over the, the, the coming years. But um, certainly, I think for both of us, we probably see it as a bit of a turning point from where they've been, um, you know, whether it'll be positive or, or negative or sort of no news, who knows. Yep. Some discipline will be good. Just don't go too far. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, that does it for us today. Thank you for joining us. If you want to continue the conversation with us or send us submissions for next month's uh, CEO Chalk Talk, please feel free to find us on Twitter at CD Castellan or at Tupan Bakchi, T-O-O-P-N-P-A-N Bakchi, or send us a note at info at the Thanks again. All right. Thank you.